Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. This is Betty. She is a great yellow bumblebee, one of Scotland's most special bumblebees. There aren't many of her kind. Be it the fourth year of Costa Tour, cheer on the helper, I guess I'll coach you in the healing and move to I guess I'll coach you in the healing and to her Be Betty the fourth phone talib a coach smaller genuinely. Jira coaching a mouth ounce and arrow. Agasin Tarog is on the cloud in the hawk. Yet the Giga Nectar Agas Pollen as in the Flurican Eravaka. Welcome to Nature Tripping episode 19. That was an excerpt from Super Bee, a storybook we'll be finding out more about later. We're Oh my god! What is it? There she is! It's Super Bee, look, Joey! Yeah. Oh, that was a whopper! That was. Cathy, carry Sorry. on introducing the podcast. <laughs> um, this episode's all about bumblebees, and in particular about what one island community has done to help their special bumblebee. We're in Tyree again. It's August and we are on a sort of grassy dune bank by the sea full of flowers and grasses right next to a great yellow bumblebee nest great yellow bumblebees are incredibly rare and we're here today with janet bowler who ran a project on the island to help the conservation status of the bumblebees, to improve their chances, to boost populations. We're going to be finding out all about what that project involved, um, but we're also going to be talking generally more about bumblebees and their plight, including the plight of this specific bombus, but the others as well. Some of them are not faring so well. But um, before we get into detail about this project and the great yellow bumblebee, Joe, you've been looking into the whole life cycle of bumblebees, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit complicated, but um, what I thought it would be good for us to chat about, first of all, is what is the life cycle of a bumblebee and what do they need to survive during the course of their life cycle? So imagine it's springtime, say, could be early spring, so the kind of February time of year or right through maybe into early summer a new queen bee emerges from hibernation so she's been underground in a little nest a little chamber all winter hibernating but she's already got inside her the fertilized eggs from the previous year and what she needs to do is set up her new bumblebee colony 
and first thing to do after emerging is to find some food. So she'll have been living off fat reserves for most of the winter and be quite hungry. So she has to forage for food. So she's looking for flowers that are producing pollen and nectar. She boosts her energy supplies. The next thing she has to do is to find somewhere to base her colony. So she needs some kind of cavity and that could be an old hole where a mouse or a vole has lived, maybe where a bird has nested. Then, before she lays her eggs, she gathers up a little pot of nectar. She makes a little wax pot and fills it with nectar from the flowers so she's got something to feed on whilst she's laying eggs. She also builds a mound of pollen and wax and she lays her eggs onto these and they hatch into larvae and she has to go out, get more food, feed these larvae, they go through some molting, they then build themselves a little silk cocoon and then from that they emerge as new worker bumblebees and they are all female and it then becomes their job to look after the nest and to help with the help with bringing up the new larvae that the queen bee lays during the course of later spring and summer that's how the colony builds the queen bee she just continues to lay eggs um, that goes on for a while then um, later on in the season some of the eggs that she lays do not turn into female workers they turn into males and into new queen bees the males they just kind of grow up and go and fly outside and hang out looking for new queen bees to mate with the queen bees new queen bees have also emerged and they will hopefully mate with a male from their species and then we're nearly at the end of the cycle now we're at the end of summer early autumn they still need the flowers and the nectar feed themselves up build up some fat reserves and then find somewhere to hibernate dig themselves a hole and go underground and hibernate ready for next spring they emerge and the cycle starts all over again and meanwhile, all the, the old queen dies, all the old worker bees die, and all the other males die. Yeah. It's only the new queens that hibernate mm. over winter, isn't it? Yeah, very different from honeybees. Yes. Honeybees are making honey, and they're making that honey so they can actually feed all the way through the winter when there aren't any, isn't any nectar or pollen available. Yeah. So maybe we should clarify, honeybees are a completely different species, and they're domesticated, so bumblebees don't make honey. Honeybees are the only species that do make honey, really. And they... They require a beekeeper. To... And a hive. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> the human assistance. Yeah. From what you've said, in the spring, when, when we start seeing bumblebees for the first time, big, buzzy bumblebees all over, they are all queens emerging from hibernation to start that cycle. And the workers, the female workers that come along later, Janet, are they much smaller? 
They generally are smaller, yeah. So um, certainly with the great yellow bumblebee and probably other species of bumblebee as well, the queen who's just come out of hibernation lays a, a first brood and when they hatch out, they then help provision for a second brood. And then they also go around collecting nectar and pollen to raise the males and the daughter queens. And how, how many bumblebee species are there in Britain? Apparently there's 24. Yeah, that sounds good. Bombus, <laughs> 24 bombus species. But they're not all, um, they don't all do this um, colony queen Well, thing, most of them do, Yeah. but some of them, I think about six of them, are what are called cuckoo bumblebees. So the name, as the name suggests, they're social parasites. Cunningly, they emerge a few weeks after. Sort of later in the spring, later. Yeah, yeah. and then find a queen bee's nest and invade it and take it over. We've already heard a bit from Janet Bowler, but we need to introduce her properly. Janet is a freelance conservation ecologist who initiated and ran a five-year community project about bees on Tyree in partnership with the RSPB. She's going to tell us uh, more about the great yellow bumblebee and bumblebees in general and why they are under threat. What bumblebees have we got here on, the, on Tyree? Eight species of bumblebee, which makes it nice and easy to identify them all. And there is one species of cuckoo bumblebee as well, but that's really quite rare. We hardly ever see it. Um, but when we do, it looks like one of the more common species. It just looks a little bit different, so it gives the game away. Yes. So what's so special about the great yellow bumblebee of Tyree? Tyree's a really important haven for this species. Um, the great yellow bumblebee used to occur throughout the British Isles. And then, because of intensification, agricultural intensification during the Second World War, um, we lost a huge amount of wildflower meadows that they rely on. Mm. After the war, instead of going back to more traditional farming, it just remained um, intensive and lucrative. And that pushed the, the range of the great yellow bumblebee into places where there's still only low-level agriculture, traditional practices. And so that's why the great yellow bumblebee now is extinct from most of Britain. Um, and only in some of the Western Isles in Scotland and the Northern Isles and a little bit on the mainland North Coast as well. It's gone from a UK bumblebee to a Scottish bumblebee. Mm. And that's similar for some of the other 24 bumble bee species. Some of them, as, as I understand, are still doing okay, but there's a chunk of them that really suffered once agriculture was intensified. Mm. So along with the great yellow bumblebee, there are six others that are now also kind of so threatened that they're on a biodiversity action plan list. So they've got kind of special 
conservation status. Mm. So in, in the rest of Britain, not here necessarily, they needed, as well as loads of flowers throughout a long season, they needed hedgerows as places where there were lots of nooks and crannies and holes for, for nesting. And as well as losing all the flowers and flower meadows, and flowers and verges, we've lost hedgerows, haven't we, most of Britain? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's the, the shelter as yeah. well. And then, of course, use of pesticides. Oh, has, yes. Has been and herbicides. Yeah. Just yeah, so we've got this group of, well, neonicotinoid pesticides have been, been implicated in um, impacting bees. And they were banned by Europe a few years ago, although I think in Britain you can get an emergency authorization still to, to use them if you need to on... Mm. on beet crops. Generally before widespread use of pesticides you would have had fields maybe of wheat but they would have had weeds in them as well. They would have, mm -hmm. wouldn't have been as totally monoculture as they are now but because of herbicides farmers have been able to get rid of weeds. Higher productivity but mm. that has impacted in a quite devastating way. Oh terrible yes. And it's only just recently that we've people have really come to understand the worth of wild bees and other wild pollinators for doing all this work for us as so, much as any, anything else. Yeah, because when they're out gathering food for themselves, they are pollinating mm -hmm. plants, which is essential for mm -hmm. their reproduction, isn't it? Yeah. And that's for agriculture as well as for yeah. wildlife. And we can't rely solely on one species of honeybee to do the job because... You need a variety of species to cope with fluctuating environmental conditions. And also with the different types of flower that you have. Look, the honeybees have a quite a short tongue, I think. Whereas yes. bumblebees, across the 24 species, there's all different lengths of tongue designed to get into all different types of plants. To suck out the nectar, the sugary nectar. This is a, a daft question, but where's the pollen? I know that they have nectar deep in the flower, but where's the pollen in the flower? The pollen's closer to the, the surface of the, the outside. Flower. Yes, because they gather that in their leg sacs, the sacs on yes, their legs. That's yeah, that's right. So yeah. They, they eat the nectar directly and yes. gather up the pollen on their yep, legs. That's yeah, right. and, they, and they need the pollen in the nests because it's got the protein in it. Yeah. Whereas the nectar has got the carbohydrate, so yeah. they, they need both pollen and nectar. Anyway, getting back to great yellow bumblebees, we are in fact sat here with the sea lapping behind us, the sun shining down on us and amazingly for Tyree, it happens to be a day when the wind isn't blowing at 25 miles an hour, yeah, a pleasant breeze. just behind us we have got <laughs> an active nest of great yellow bumblebees. And that's really, it's a really special thing because very few have ever been found. They're almost impossible to find if you go looking for them. And it just happens that someone who knew what a great yellow bumblebee is was walking past the right place at the right moment. Actually, while <laughs> Joe and Cathy have been chatting, I've been watching the great yellow bumblebees zooming in and out of the nest. <laughs> and it's, it's just wonderful to see mm. them busy. And the ones we're watching at the moment, are, are they worker bees? So, yes, so we've been seeing two sizes of worker bee going in and out. One tiny little one, which I think is from the first um, cohort of workers, the first brood of workers. And then the bigger one, um, 
which uh, it, it looks fresher as well, the colours are brighter. And that's, been, that's from the second brood of workers. But I think we also just saw uh, the original queen bumblebee growing Ooh, in as well. What's she doing out? So she will continue to provision the nest. Okay. So they're providing food now for the males and the daughter queens. Yeah. So they're developing now and very shortly they will emerge and it will be the absolute busiest part of their season. Will that be later in August or early September do you think? It, normally we were, it's normally the first couple of weeks in August but this year it's all been delayed because we had such a dreadful spring. Yeah. How do the fluctuations in weather during a year kind of affect them? It's interesting during the course of this project um, we've been monitoring the bees and the habitat for the last five years and so we've got a feel for how the weather in spring has affected the bee activity and it's been all over the place no two years are the same um, if you get a dry spring if it's very dry it might be hot and wonderful for us but it's no good for nectar production and that can hold the bees back um, if it's too wet and windy or cold then it's that's not good for either flowers or the bees mm. um, but somehow and I think this is why they're still doing all right here on Tyree is that they've got enough resources of different times like different flower species at different times so that regardless of the vagaries of the weather there is always something for yeah. them and they can speed up their cycle it's one of the shortest cycles of all bumblebee species in terms of when they the queen emerges and then when the new queen hibernates yes exactly mm. it's one of the shortest ones and in fact, the, um, they're also known as the, the sleepy bee because really they're only active for three months of the year and the rest of the time they're sleeping underground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you're a male bumblebee, a male great yellow bumblebee, you have a very short life, don't you? Oh, yes. Is it a matter of days? <laughs> it is, yes, a matter of days. They, they emerge and then whiz about looking Hang, they actually hang around the entrances of other nests, so they have to go and find other nests. They can detect the new queen bees coming out. They ambush them at the entrance <laughs> of the nest. And then once they've done their bit, they just go off and feed a bit more and then die. I think what you said about, um, I suppose, the resilience of the landscape here in that there's flowering plants, the right type of flowering plants, whatever the weather. Is that to do with the macare and the way the land is managed? I mean, maybe we could explain what macare is because that's probably a term most people won't have heard of before. No, that's right. No, that's a good point. I mean, uh, sorry, macare. Oh, sorry. It's, it's, it's yeah. all right. Yeah, it's a Gallic <laughs> word meaning the herb-rich grasslands and it's quite unique to the islands and coastal areas of Scotland. It's where you've had centuries of seaweed application has fertilised an otherwise really quite barren, sandy landscape. And then with the action of the grazing animals and the manure that they provide as well, it's created this lovely habitat which really only survives because you've got animals grazing it in the winter but leaving it to flower in the summer. And so Tyree has a lot of this and quite an extensive mosaic 
And within those mosaics, they have several species which are just the right type for a great yellow bumblebee. Um, what we discovered, though, with um, when we were plotting our um, population sizes each year is that you could tell when the weather was good or bad in, in a year. And it just indicated how important it is to have a really extensive, biodiverse uh, floral community. Mm. So that regardless of the weather, the bees have got uh, something to choose from. Yeah. And what are the plant species that the um, bees really like? I know this red clover is meant to be really important, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. What are the other types of flowers, flowering plants they love here? So it depends on the season. So right at the start of the season, when before the red clover flowers, they like a plant called kidney vetch, which flowers early. And it, I don't know how the bees do it, but somehow they get their timing perfectly with the flowering kidney vetch. There's also birdsweet trefoil they use early on. Uh, and then later you've got the clover. Probably clover is most important because it has the longest season and um, the bees just love it. I think the tube of the flowers is exactly the right length mm. for the bee's tongue. All of these species that the bee likes have this long tube to reach the nectar. And so it's kind of reserved for them with their long tongue. Ah, yeah. So maybe the plants have worked out these particular bees are really good at pollinating us. So we're going to make a tube that is just right for this particular That's bee's right. tongue. Because we want this together. one. We don't want anybody yeah. getting our pollen or nectar, just these bees. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's mm. it. They've evolved together. And do, do they communicate with each other about um, where plants are? We're not sure about mm. that. It's not like the, you know, the honeybees... They do their yeah. waggle dance yeah. to indicate where the food is. But bumblebees, I think it's more about drifting. Yeah. But certainly, once they have learnt where the food, the good food is, yeah. then they all head in the right same direction. Yeah. But whether they're communicating that or not, I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because yeah. we were, we were briefly chatting about sentience, and this is it's an example where the bees are using their senses to obtain information about the plants and crops they need and they're adapting and modifying changing their behavior to uh, maximize the chances of both them as an individual finding that food and their colleagues from the nest and remembering where the good flowers are and the good food supplies are they may or may not be communicating within the nest um, we don't know though do we no we've no <laughs> idea you've talked about them going to the flower-rich parts. I wonder if they have flight paths because there seem to be some places where you can stand and nothing happens and then I've stood in other places and I have seen a few bees all fly kind of backwards and forwards across me like they're all on a kind of highway to wherever. Yeah I think that's right I think once they've worked out where the food is they'll take the shortest route from there to the nest so you end up with these highways and because the really good habitat on Tyree is it's in patches so the bees have to head straight for that patch without bothering with you know a, a beach or a silage crop or whatever.
Janet, you've talked a little bit about the population surveys you've been doing. Maybe we could talk a bit more about the project and you could tell us how it came into being and how you set it up and what you did. Yeah, certainly. End of 2016, um, some RSPB folk asked me if I wanted to get involved in maybe planting out some kidney vetch seeds for the bumblebees when they emerge in the spring. And it was while I was doing that and looking at Tidy's landscape and the people, I thought there really is scope here for a community project which will not only help raise awareness of the bee but will actually help produce forage for the bees and get folk out counting bees and I was amazed with the response and so we had local volunteer surveyors, people planting the right kinds of wildflowers in I think, I think it's about 50 gardens on the island and also in some public gardens as well. And um, one of my favourites, actually, it was at the, the care home garden. There was a project there to create a century garden for the folk living there. And they asked me if I'd do a, a mini macher at the back of it. And it flowered so well. It was probably one of the best. Beautiful. Sensational. The and the residents would go around and sit and look at this carpet of yellow flowers and see the bees and butterflies and, and uh, that worked really very well. The monitoring as well, of course, we discovered some interesting things about how the numbers vary with weather and climate. We got funding from Kew Gardens Grow Wild project, which helped buy tons of bespoke wildflower seeds. Wildflower seeds that are from a Scottish source and matched the requirements of the great yellow bumblebee. So we only included seeds of flowers that were already on the island, but we didn't want to get those mixed up with wildflower seeds. So they were only for gardens, planting in gardens. Um, so that was very successful. And then we also collected wild kidney vetch seeds and some red clover seeds. And we put those in other parts of the island where maybe there was some erosion or just when anyone asked mm. and that was pretty successful too L less successful because quite often there's a reason why that species isn't growing there in the first place but it, it did take in some places so that was good living on the mainland and coming to Tyree one of the immediate things you notice is my goodness there are fields and fields of flowers it's full of flowers was there still a need for more flowers in, in people's gardens? Or was it about getting the community connected with the great yellow bumblebee or a bit of both? It was a bit of both. And what's great about Tidy is that the gardens are scattered throughout the island. There are very few actual centres of houses. And so you've got houses and gardens all throughout the island. And that meant that we could create little patches of forage between the main parts of Macher. And so we were actually making it easier for the bumblebees to move about the island and find food. How big a patch do you need to make a worthwhile difference? How big a garden? I've heard different values, but every little bit counts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a great yellow bumblebee, one nest needs quite extensive um, area of Macher. But to be a little stopover on the way between patches is a really good idea, yeah. yeah. And have your population surveys shown any 
extension in the range of the bee? Are there, for example, certain hot spots on the island where you're more likely to find this species, but you, you ended up finding them further afield? There are certainly hot spots on the island where the macker has been managed the right way for years, decades. And then the great hill is more sparse in other areas. The monitoring did not show that the bees were using other areas. They weren't increasing the range on the island. We couldn't show that from the data because when you're collecting the data, you're going to the places where there's lots of flowers. Yeah. We would have actually had to start investigating people's gardens as well. Yeah. Um, it's also over five years, it's probably not enough time for them to expand. And also it's really hard to find them. So you yeah, don't know how easy. many you might miss. Yeah, it's not easy to find them. You know, when doing a bumblebee survey, you can count several hundred other species before finding one great yellow. And the bumblebee survey, is that basically draw a line through a field, walk through a field and see if you, you hear them first, don't you? Yeah. See if you hear a bumblebee. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, you, you basically wander around <laughs> the flowering the <laughs> meadow on a sunny day when there's not much wind. You do that for an hour and you record all the bumblebee species that you, you see in that hour. And once you get used to it, yes, you start to hear them before you see them and pin them down that way and in fact um, some bumblebee species have a slightly different tone of buzz. Wow <laughs> so if you're an expert bumblebee surveyor you'll be able to tell by the sound which bumblebee well, you can it tell, is. You can tell its size yeah. and some people swear they can tell a great yellow bumblebee queen because they are the biggest yeah. but I've been misled by Moscarder bee queens before mm. as well, because they can be huge. So what were the findings of the monitoring surveys overall? Um, we discovered that, yes, Tyree is still a brilliant place for great yellow bumblebees. We have probably some of the highest densities of any of their home islands. Yes, they're doing very well here and, you know, protecting the environment, making sure that the there's plenty of food for them is um, critical. Those results give you an evidence base on which to ensure that the conservation work it continues Continue. or the mm -hmm. management strategies that you have for Macca are kept in place. You may or may not know, but so are bumblebees generally being affected by climate change? So it depends on the species and how flexible they are about changing climate. Um, but certainly if their flowers start to emerge before they do, before yeah. they emerge from hibernation, then there's a risk that the wrong flowers are available for them when they need them, or there aren't any flowers when they need them. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the main concern, really. Yeah. So remember at the beginning of the podcast, um, well, what you heard at the beginning of the podcast was a section from a storybook called Super Bee, or in Gaelic, <laughs> Betty Bandry. And this was the third kind of pillar of your project, wasn't it? Working with 
a local primary school. Yes, that's right. Um, as we developed the project, um, the kids had been getting involved in gardening at the school as well, in, in bumblebee gardening and coming on bumblebee walks. And then it occurred to me that we might be able to do a, a nice little storybook. Not really knowing whether anyone would be interested or not, but I went into the school and asked the kids and there are few of them were dead keen and they were amazing once we'd gone over a bit about bumblebees life and the conservation issues and so on they came up with some superb characters and storyline and a plot a funny plot and we got a local artist to do the illustrations which are beautiful um, and then we thought we're a Gaelic island let's translate it into Gaelic and some of the kids on the project were Gaelic speakers as well um, this is the final product. So going from, really, I'm not sure if anyone's really going to be interested in this. So we've got this really beautiful, glossy book, yep. fun, mm. uh, fun story, fun illustrations. And we'll, we'll say uh, now, in case we forget, where can people see or buy a copy of Super Bee? They're available from Tyree Community Development Trust, and they're available from... Buavala, which is a local shop, and from Anilan, which is the local museum, and also from the Gaelic Books Council, who mm. helped fund the project. And the profits from the book go back into the Tyree community, don't they? That's right, yes. Yeah. So all, all the profits are split between the Tyree Community Ranger Service, which is here um, to help protect the landscape, and the school, the primary school, so that if there's any environmental projects that they need a bit of money for, yeah. the money's there for them as yeah. well. So Betty, she's the main protagonist, she's the queen yes. of the yellow bumblebee, great yellow bumblebee colony. And the story involves another character, Queen Henna. Yes. Now, Queen Henna is a honeybee. So bumblebees, I think, their colony sizes are like maybe around 50 to 400, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, but somewhere around that number so yeah well particularly um great yellow bumblebee is a small colony size yeah. maybe only up to 100 individuals when it's full right mm -hmm. okay yeah. whereas a honeybee can have a colony as big as 50,000 yes quite different so a whole army of there worker were... bees out there looking for pollen and nectar there's competition for the pollen and nectar and that that's the kind of story here isn't it queen henna honeybee is nicking all the nectar and pollen causing uh, queen betty some problems for her colony yes that's that's right we're trying to get this across in a fun children's storybook way can be a bit controversial but if you've got a rare bumblebee species or any kind of rare pollinator species then if you introduce 10 honeybee hives then you're introducing 50,000 times 10 <laughs> 500,000 500,000 yeah that's a huge amount of competition if you've got a species on the edge yeah and also a small and finite amount of food yes that's right available. yes so they, they do end up competing and there's also some evidence of transferring diseases as well from the honeybee hive to wild population mm. so folk have to be really careful about where they place honeybee hives. In the story with Betty Bannery, <laughs> which means Queen Betty, the local farmer and a local crofter got together and planted a lot of new flowers 
the crofter in, increases macker right. for the bumblebees and the gardener planted lots of vegetable flowers and fruits and things so that for the honeybees. Yeah. And this meant that both had plenty and they didn't need to compete. So it has a happy ending. There's a lot of factual information out there. And I just wanted to do something with the kids that they would find interesting and fun. And also get a bit more of the message of their own wildlife across to them. Yeah. So they really appreciate what's, what's here. So um, doing something creative maybe yeah. helps them feel more yeah. connected and feel more motivated to That's take right. part and engage. And they absolutely loved it. Mm. And they're so excited when the book came out. See their work in print. Yeah, yeah. what people can do to help their local bee populations. Like we said earlier, some of the species have held up okay since the industrialisation of agriculture post-1950s. For others it's been devastating and I guess people's gardens and the verges along roads are now potentially really important places for both sites where bees might be able to hibernate over winter or even create colony, but also find all the pollen and nectar that they need to get them through their, their life cycle. So there's a real role, positive thing, that the public can do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's growing the right kinds of flowers for bumblebees. Um, it's essential and also leaving some sort of rough, wild margins in the garden as well where they might be able to nest or hibernate so sort of scruffy patches in the scruffy edges patches, yeah. Exactly, yeah. and there's that whole thing about not mowing the lawn isn't there if you could if, if people can stop mowing grass then lots of flowers will yeah develop there's, there will be maybe already species in your lawn that if you left it would flower you never get to see because you mow it but mm. you might have lots of dandelions and clover. daisies and clover even that mm. the bumblebees would all very much appreciate thank you very much that, that certainly that can happen it depends what sort of wild seeds are already in your lawn mm. as, as to what would come up but you can augment it by putting in the right kind of yeah. flower seeds yeah i'd just say that you have to let it grow in the summer but you must also cut it in the autumn and remove the grass cuttings because you don't want it to become rank and you don't want the organic content to increase too high. Yeah. Because wildflowers like prefer poor soil. Yeah. So removing the cuttings is is a bit like a cow coming along and eating the grass and taking it away with them, making sure that the nutrient levels in the soil remain low, which yeah. these plants like. Yeah. A few episodes back, we were talking um, with someone who looked after graveyards and biodiversity in graveyards oh, yes. and she was explaining to us all about these grasslands are ancient um, and we maintain them by cutting them at certain times of the year and really important take the clippings off yes yeah yeah well um that's why cattle grazing is so perfect for 
encouraging wildflower growth. Yeah. So if you, if you can get a cow in your garden, even better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read it, was it Dave Goulson, big yes. bumblebee researcher? Yes. I was reading one of his papers online and his paper's called The Demise of the Bumblebee. You can find it online, it was published in 2006. But he was citing... Uh, the diaries of one of the original researchers of uh, bumblebees called Frederick Sladen, um, back in Edwardian times, so early 1900s. Back in Edwardian times, it was quite possible to find 15 species of bumblebee in a reasonably good-sized garden. And today we're down to about seven or eight, if mm. you're lucky. Um, so you can look back at these historical diaries and nature writings and this thing of like the plenitude of nature and realize what you've lost but wouldn't it be great if everybody kind of gardened in a bit more bumblebee friendly way bumblebee conservation trust is a great place to look isn't it there's loads of resources on there about uh, what to do to create a bumblebee friendly garden and maybe even like make conditions such that you could get the whole life cycle going on in your yeah, garden. Yeah, it would be wonderful to yeah. watch a nest develop, yeah. see what's going on. Yeah. Yep. I think you can even put in what plants you grow at the moment and they'll give you a score and then awesome. tell you what plants, or suggest to you what new plants you might like to put in to boost your score. So you've got this pollen and nectar all the way through. Yes. Great. Very to important. Garden yeah. with flowers all year round. Great for you, great for the bumblebees. Yes. Yeah. If you're into bumblebee identification, quite tricky. <laughs> but we've been looking at this book, The Field Guide to the Bumblebees. Oh yes, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. of Great Britain and Ireland. That's by Mike Edwards and Martin Jenner. Yeah, I found one the other day on the road, a little dead worker bee. She had pollen sacs, so I knew she was a female. And her top half was yellow black, yellow, a bottom half was oh, yellow, black, white and this book gives you these little colour bands and you try and find well, which bumblebee matches that and I got down to, it's possibly this, it's possibly that and then it said well look at the shape of its face and I thought oh my goodness <laughs> You have to be a real bumblebee aficionado yeah. to appreciate the shape of the face yeah, yeah. So I kind of narrowed it down, but I didn't quite get to exactly what species of bombus it was. Yeah. What's the pattern of colours for a great yellow? So bumblebee? great yellow bumblebee is all over, sort of mustard yellow, uh, with a distinctive black band yeah. of hair between the wings, the bases of the wings. It's been lovely talking to you, Janet. Oh, thanks for talking to me. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a lovely setting as well. Oh, it's gorgeous. And I think the whole project was really inspiring. The way you kind of combined the science with some practical action and involving the children and coming up with a really lovely book. Thank you very much. I must admit, I've done a lot of conservation projects and this was definitely my favourite of all time. I'm sure the great yellow bumblebees appreciate it too. (laughs) I hope so. Nun ha fyrti siachwyd hae dy ffacl bianoch eich chylw. Han y ban a ffrionsi'n nyn sylun mora y dianaf hwyl rytaf na bian ffar y catal iad, ffat y chionri.
Han ashelen en mila a dolerashkan skatebacher faran bi et geblachiram kala guyarach. Han a flurikin ersherak don ur. Han a kro agis nakurich agilant rach. In a machur agihefir blaster. Fan of savolche hilen baker. Stay safe, little bees. big thanks to Charlotte Vale and Molly Knowles for their readings from Superbee in English and Gaelic. Charlotte and Molly live on Tyree and are two of the storybook's authors. Thank you also for listening to this latest episode of Nature Tripping. If you've enjoyed it, please go ahead and recommend it to all your insect-loving friends as we're always looking for new subscribers. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and would like to leave us a review, that would be fantastic. And if you're feeling super keen and would like more episodes, we've now set up a way to buy us coffee or, in other words, donate a bit towards our production costs. Just head to the podcast's main website page at www.joekennedysound.com forward slash nature tripping. Nature tripping's all one word. And scroll to the bottom of the page. Bye for now. <laughs>